Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brookes University in the UK, your host of the channel. Today we will speak about a great visionary book on economics, but also political science. The title is Democracy and Growth in the 21st Century, The Diverging Cases of China and Italy, book published in 2019 by Palgrave Macmillan with two authors, Francesco Grillo and Raffaella Nanetti. Today we are with Francesco Grillo, Dr. Grillo, and is reaching us from Rome. Welcome, Francesco. Can you tell us something about your affiliations and also of uh, Raffaella, your co-author, and thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot, Andrea. Uh, let me start from uh, Raffaella, who apologizes for not being with us today. She's a political scientist. Uh, she got uh, her PhD at uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, she um, joined Robert Putnam in a rather uh, famous work uh, introducing the concept of uh, social capital uh, and brought with uh, Robert Putnam a uh, early uh, 70s uh, book called uh, Make Democracy Work. Oh, wow, uh, masterpiece. She, yeah, uh, she then uh, uh, got involved with teaching and research at University of Chicago uh, of which she's uh, still Professor Emerita, and she's now teaching at uh, Lewis in uh, Rome. Uh, as far as I am concerned, I am, uh, well, probably my background is, uh, is more diversified than uh, uh, Raffaella's one, uh, because I, I am born as a management consultant. I work with McKinsey. I got an MBA from uh, BU, Boston University. Then I turned to um, political economy. Uh, I got my PhD at the London School of Economics. Uh, and since uh, my PhD, I have been visiting uh, University of Oxford. Uh, and now I'm uh, associate uh, to Sant'Anna University in uh, Pisa. Uh, I'm still consulting. I'm managing director of uh, a firm called Vision and Value, which is a spin-off of McKinsey. Uh, I am also a columnist of uh, the Italian newspaper uh, Corriere della Sera. I run a blog with The Guardian in UK, uh, and I've been advisor of a couple of uh, ministers uh, of uh, research school and universities in, uh, in Italy. And I'm now considering my next move uh, in uh, academia. Perfect, very good. Uh, I will uh, tell to our listeners the structure of the book before I make you, I ask you my first question. So there are five big chapters. Number one, introduction, democracy, innovation, and growth. Number two, making democracy work for innovation. Number three, China, advantages and risks of the entrepreneurial state. 
Chapter 4, Italy, Simultaneous Crisis of Democracy, Innovation and Economic Efficiency. And then a conclusion in the form of Chapter 5, Knowledge, Democracy as Key to the 21st Century. So let's start. Can you tell us something about uh, what is the book about and how did you put it together with your code? Or how did you get the idea of this book? Yes. Okay. Well, the book actually is... Uh... Uh, the continuation of uh, the um, strand of research that I initiated at London School of Economics with, uh, with my PhD. Uh, my PhD thesis uh, was titled um, Are uh, Public Investment in uh, Research and Development Worthwhile? Uh, the Taxpayers' Money. And uh, basically, uh, the rather counterintuitive starting point of, uh, of, uh, of that research was that uh, it is not at all automatic that spending more in research and development uh, gets translated into higher economic growth. Uh, so uh, my research at the, at the LSE was basically about investigating the institutional condition, if you want, uh, uh, that makes uh, the performance of public investment in research and development uh, higher. Uh, and more specifically, I investigated the relationship between uh, participation and uh, uh, performance of innovation policies at the region level. I investigated the cases of uh, quite a number of uh, uh, European regions, uh, mostly in uh, Spain and UK. Um, I then wrote with Raffaella, in fact, a book out of uh, my thesis in uh, 2016. Uh, the book was titled uh, uh, Innovation, uh, Efficiency and uh, Growth. So in, in a sense, the title is not very different from, from, the, from, uh, from, from the book that we are talking about today. Uh, and basically, the book uh, uh, that I just published with Raffaella is, uh, if you want, the scale-up of the same argument, the same framework uh, at uh, a global level. So instead of considering regions, I am considering countries. Um, the book is not uh, about China as, uh, uh, in itself. It's not about Italy. It's um, about um, the relationship, uh, the new relationship that probably is emerging between uh, uh, democracy, uh, innovation, and economic growth. And uh, China and Italy are two extreme cases that offer a very interesting, uh, in our opinion, uh, point of view uh, to investigate what is happening to this relationship, which is basically at the heart of uh, uh, economic theory. Uh, very good. So in light of this continuation from your previous work, tell us about the very beginning of the book, chapter one, paragraph one, the innovation paradox. What is it and why it is so crucial in this book? Well, the innovation paradox uh, is, in fact, as you just said, uh, uh, very central to uh, what we call the crisis of the West. And let me say that uh, the West is, in fact, uh, the core of the book. We are uh, uh, looking to, to China, we are comparing uh, Italy and China, 
But basically, uh, our main concern, uh, since we are not exactly uh, China experts, is uh, to understand a little bit more about uh, the economic and even more the political crisis of the West. Our thesis is at the center of this uh, uh, crisis uh, is uh, what we call the innovation paradox. The innovation paradox is not, an, uh, is not an entirely new concept. Robert Solov in 1986 uh, introduced the uh, idea uh, as uh, the productivity paradox. Basically, the argument of uh, Solov uh, was uh, why uh, computers are everywhere but in uh, productivity statistics. Basically, Robert Solov, uh, the Nobel Prize, observed more than 30 years ago that notwithstanding the, uh, the, 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 the introduction of computers are everywhere, um, the uh, economic statistics are not reacting uh, as, 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 uh, in, in the way Robert Solov would have expected. After 30 years, this productivity paradox has become even bigger. If you look to the, uh, to the, uh, to the evolution of uh, uh, the information communication technologies, uh, basically the, um, the, the capacity of, uh, of the computers put together by the internet to store information, to transmit information, to compute information, has increased of uh, roughly 30% per year. However, uh, productivity, so the value of each uh, job at the end of the day, uh, the growth of productivity has uh, decreased steadily since uh, uh, more or less uh, uh, the time when Robert Solom was uh, uh, the first to, to, to notice uh, this, uh, this puzzle. And it is a puzzle because uh, if you have uh, uh, much more information, you should also be able to be pro more productive because you uh, better know which are the most productive uh, uh, ends uh, to which allocate uh, scare, scarce resources. This does not uh, appear the case, and it is not just productivity. So this is why we called the productivity paradox. We upgraded the concept of the productivity paradox to innovation paradox, because the, uh, there are many other numbers, many other parameters, but more importantly, there is the feeling of, uh, of the people in the West that technologies are not delivered what, uh, uh, what they promised. And in defining this paradox, you have used the word puzzle, but there is another puzzle, the puzzle of democracy, as the determinant of this paradox. Can you elaborate on this point, which is in your book? Yes. Well, the puzzle of democracy uh, is uh, uh, at the same time uh, the cause, but also the consequence of uh, the innovation paradox. Um, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, there is also a, a rather uh, clear uh, evidence uh, that uh, you can find in the, in the book. Uh, basically, if you, if, you, if you map, if you scatter countries of the world in a, in a, in a, in a, in a map according to their economic growth, 
and their uh, um, uh, ranking in the democratic index uh, elaborated by the economists, it seems that there is a very a rather strong negative correlation between uh, degree uh, of democracy and uh, economic growth. Now, we in the book uh, go beyond this uh, uh, empirical evidence uh, which can have uh, quite a number of uh, limits. And um, our uh, observation is that, uh, uh, well, if we are not talking exactly about democracy. Uh, talking about the liberal democracy, which is a, a specific form of democracy, um, our observation is that the liberal democracy procedures have uh, been, uh, how can I say, overwhelmed by um, this uh, explosion of information. Liberal democracies seem not uh, uh, technically notable to uh, produce the strategies, the infrastructure, the regulation, the incentives which are absolutely necessary uh, to, for a society to adapt to a mutation, we call, uh, we call it mutation, like the one that the, uh, uh, this new industrial revolution uh, is, uh, is producing. Uh, but this is the cause. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a, 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 a lower performance of, uh, uh, of, of um, economic system uh, governed by liberal democracy uh, make people more and more disappointed because they feel that the promise of this uh, uh, huge technological progress uh, are not being delivered. And this is a very strong uh, feeling, especially uh, among the middle class. Uh, there is also uh, an additional uh, problem with liberal democracies. The technologies themselves um, have uh, uh, bypassed the uh, information holders, the media, the universities that we, we used to have uh, as uh, uh, monopolies of information. And people can voice their disappointment uh, uh, much more heavily, and therefore this reinforces even more the uh, crisis of liberal democracy. So, in a sense, the innovation paradox and the puzzle of democracy reinforce each other. And to us, this seems quite a, a convincing theory uh, to explain the very many different crises. Uh, of liberal democracy in the UK, in Italy, for the European Union, or in the United States. So let's move to chapter three, where you put in practice this theoretical framework talking about China. Yes, well, um, uh, we um, everybody's talking about, about China as uh, either uh, the, the, the star of uh, the so-called globalization, uh, although we are now in a sort of deglobalization uh, era, uh, or as the big threat uh, to the West. Let me first, first of all say that uh, um, I believe that the book and we do not belong to any of the two ideological camps that are uh, uh, confronting each other when we talk about China. In other words, I have the impression that we have uh, on one side uh, 
people uh, who think that China, uh, as uh, somebody has uh, recently said in uh, Washington, D.C., is uh, an enemy which is even worse than, uh, than Russia or uh, uh, than Soviet Union uh, used to be. And on the other side, uh, you also have uh, uh, quite a number of even uh, Western uh, intellectuals that um, almost uh, say that uh, even uh, the snow in uh, Beijing is uh, more beautiful, like uh, some, some people used to say about the snow in Moscow. Uh, quite a number of years ago. Um, I think we try to, uh, to, to, to be uh, uh, as much as possible uh, uh, balanced. Uh, China is not paradise, uh, and uh, the Chinese are the first to say that they are uh, not a model. However, if you look to numbers, talking about uh, uh, the productivity paradox, the productivity paradox does not exist for China. Uh, not only for China, this applies also to other Asian countries, but uh, in the numbers of China are even more staggering. Uh, just talking about the last uh, uh, six or seven years since uh, 2010, uh, so talking about a period um, during which the uh, economic growth of China has decelerated, as everybody knows, uh, we um, can uh, very clearly see that the entire economic growth of China is coming, in fact, from productivity. In 2010, the number of uh, workers or people working in China was uh, slightly less than in 2018. And yet, the uh, economy has uh, um, become uh, twice as big. So the, uh, China is growing uh, just because of productivity. The West is growing much less just because of uh, an increase in the number of people who are working, a slight increase in the number of people who are working. So uh, the, 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 the productivity paradox does not exist for China. And the numbers for China uh, are not just about uh, uh, economics, are about uh, poverty. It's true that uh, the uh, economic development of China has been uh, uh, very unbalanced, producing uh, large inequalities. But yet, uh, if you look uh, to, the, to the numbers of uh, poverty reduction, um, two-thirds of the people in the world that went uh, out of, uh, of absolute poverty uh, were uh, Chinese. Uh, and also, if you look to very concrete numbers, like, for instance, uh, uh, life expectancy, uh, nowadays, uh, a Chinese, on average, uh, live, uh, lives more years than an American without uh, chronic disease. There is this indicator calculated by the World Health Organization called the Life Expectancy Adjusted uh, for uh, Diseases. And uh, uh, Chinese today live longer than American, although American uh, spend in healthcare uh, 15 times more than uh, a Chinese. So these numbers are quite uh, staggering. The secret of China, well, um, I leave it to the reader to, 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 to read the book and uh, chapter three, 
But if I can say in a nutshell, which is the, the big uh, uh, secret of China, is that they still have a state. They still have the capability to produce a strategy, to produce infrastructure, to produce regulation, to produce incentives, so that they can adapt to the mutation of the fifth industrial revolution, as we call it. Um, this is something that uh, liberal democracy uh, seems not able uh, almost uh, um, structurally uh, to do. Uh, just to give you uh, a, a macroeconomic uh, uh, expression of such a thing, uh, China, the, the real anom anomaly uh, of China is that they have uh, uh, invested 40% uh, of their GDP for the last 30 years. The percentage of GDP which is invested in countries like Italy is below 15%. So it's, it's, it's almost three times smaller. So China is, has got the advantage of central planning, which is to make a very fast decision, and it has corrected the very huge limitation of central bank central planning uh, through this practice of uh, uh, carrying out experiments. So they experiment everything before implementing uh, reforms, before adopting in a widespread way uh, technologies, and this is quite uh, quite. Uh, um, uh, something that we can probably uh, consider. Uh, uh, of course, uh, um, the uh, Chinese mi miracle uh, must be qualified. To me, it seems that the uh, strength of China is mostly relative to the weakness of the West, so it's not an absolute strength. And number two, they have, as Xi Jinping knows very well, uh, some very significant uh, vulnerabilities, or as uh, Xi Jinping calls them, challenge. To me, the biggest challenge uh, for China is, again, uh, individual freedom. Uh, one may argue that uh, uh, freedom belongs to the, uh, to the, to the Maslow pyramid of uh, uh, the needs of uh, human beings, and sooner or later, uh, people will, uh, will ask uh, more individual freedoms, and uh, uh, that will be, you know, uh, a big challenge for, uh, for, for that kind of uh, uh, political regime. Well, another paradox uh, is that uh, if, we if we read, for example, Why Nations Fail by Ajimo Oglu and Robinson, we would be surprised to explain China's rise uh, because this is happening uh, without democratic institutions. So the good policies that you have mentioned, the ability of the state to, go to do good regulations, is happening despite there is no freedom of press, freedom of speech, and there is no traditional liberal democracy institutions as we have been considering them essential to, to good policies. And this is a very, very paradoxical. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me, let me, let me, let me say that, um, that you are totally right. And um, probably this is something that must be uh, even underlined and emphasized. 
uh, it is not just that, that China is uh, a, a communist dictatorship. Um, they, uh, they among the, 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 the five countries left who are still governed by uh, Communist Party, it's the only country that does not have a, a general uh, national political election. Uh, Soviet Union used to have a national political election. China had the last general political election in 19, uh, uh, 1919, uh, so almost, uh, well, one century ago, basically. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, you are totally right. Uh, uh, it is a system which is opposite to, uh, to, to what we call liberal democracy. However, what is interesting and still to be investigated uh, is that they, in fact, have mostly within the Communist Party a rather intense uh, collective uh, problem solving, an internal debate, uh, even among uh, uh, contrasting uh, opinions and point of views, um, with uh, the uh, very clear rule that once some decision has been taken after a rather extensive uh, consultation uh, uh, process to which uh, also other parties, uh, by the way, and other institutions, not only the Communist Party uh, contribute, uh, that decision must be implemented. So they, they have uh, a process through which uh, individual intelligence is, is transformed into some, some, some form of collective intelligence. And uh, our thesis in, the, in, in our book is that probably democracy uh, beyond the concept of liberal democracy should be reinterpreted as uh, something like that, a method, a process to transform individual intelligence into collective decision, which are uh, smarter because they are uh, uh, shared. This is very interesting. The next book I'm reviewing is by Professor Yuan Yuan Hang. The title is How China Escaped the Poverty Trap by Cornell University Press. And she argues that China is, yes, an authoritarian regime, but with democratic characteristics. And this is something that you are also arguing yeah. now. I, I, I sort of agree. Okay, so now let's, let's move to chapter four, which is instead about Italy as a symbol of the decline of the West. Yeah, well, uh, Italy is the, 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 the mirror image uh, of, of China, in a sense, which is quite paradoxical because uh, China and Italy even share uh, some, uh, some traits. Probably uh, China and Italy are uh, the countries, happen to be the countries with the longest history, you know. Uh, and, uh, and as a matter of fact, they also uh, are uh, the two countries with the uh, highest number of uh, UNESCO uh, cultural sites. Um, but beyond these, uh, uh, these common traits, uh, their uh, performance has been just the opposite. Uh, just to give you uh, uh, one number, um, where, whereas China in 1989 was the poorest country of the world in terms of income per capita, this is a rather 
surprising number that we uh, detail in the book, uh, and now is uh, the largest economy of the world uh, if we uh, compute numbers in a purchase, purchasing power parity. They even uh, became bigger than the United States, in fact. Italy did just the opposite. In uh, 1994, Italy was the fourth largest economy of the world. Uh, today is uh, uh, in position number eight or number nine, and it's, uh, it's uh, sliding uh, uh, further. So uh, basically the two trajectories were, uh, were just the opposite. Um, in a sense, Italy is also very interesting. Uh, I suggest people, uh, readers, to, 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 to read the book on, uh, on Italy because it has been a laboratory of uh, a crisis, uh, economic, uh, political, but also, I would say, unfortunately, cultural crisis, which has uh, then contagious the, the rest of Europe, and not only the rest of Europe. Donald Trump uh, um, very uh, easily uh, acknowledged that Berlusconi was uh, his model. Uh, and the uh, UK, in a, in a sense, UK crisis, uh, UK, the uh, in impossibility to understand the, uh, British politics nowadays sort of resemble the much older impossibility to understand Italian politics, you know, that, uh, that we both know. Uh, so Italy is, a, is a very, very, very interesting. Um, just one number to, to say how Italy is different from, from China. Um, Italy, uh, Italian government spend uh, on pension, on retirement benefits, uh, four times more than uh, it spends on education from kindergarten to universities. The very opposite happens to China. The Chinese government spends in education four times more than it spends in pension for very different reasons. Uh, and by the way, um, it's not even true that the, um, the, uh, the age structure in, in China is, uh, is, uh, is uh, so dramatically different, you know, because, the, because China is aging quite, quite, quite fastly. The uh, reality is that, uh, that Italy is uh, spending in the past uh, four times less than uh, it invests in the, in the future, and, uh, and the, just the opposite is, uh, is happening to China. So again, um, uh, Italy uh, is uh, the, the mirror image of China because there is, uh, well, very little strategy. Uh, and this is something that does not change that much, uh, even when government uh, change dramatically. Very little strategy, very little infrastructure, very little capability to regulate new phenomena like uh, the digital platform which are really uh, changing a lot, uh, and very little uh, incentives for uh, um, making technological progress more acceptable and, for instance, managing the inequalities that technological progress uh, create. But again, um, Italy is very much just extreme case of what is happening to to Europe as a whole and uh, to the West if we add uh, uh, the United States to, to the European Union.
Good, let's move to the conclusion, almost the conclusion of the book, chapter 5, page 264. You have an interesting chapter with 10 ideas for developing knowledge democracy as a solution to the innovation paradox. Maybe you can listen yes. to the most important or very briefly all of 10. Yeah, okay. Let, let me, let me uh, uh, first of all, again, say that uh, I hope the reader will... Uh, will, uh, will uh, uh, we'll read the, the, the ideas. One distinctiveness of this research and uh, uh, that will continue is that we do not just uh, observe problems. We also try to advance some proposals, some ideas. Uh, the main message of these ideas is to transform, transform democracy uh, from a system where people just vote to a system probably I should say almost to an information system uh, which is able to um, gather, uh, as, as we said before, uh, individual intelligence into some form of uh, uh, collective uh, intelligence. So we call this idea uh, knowledge democracy. Uh, by the way, let me also say that there are some Western countries that are uh, experimenting uh, forms of uh, knowledge democracy. We refer to Estonia, to uh, Switzerland, of course, Australia, Canada, and coincidentally, um, they also are um, uh, doing much better in terms of economy and innovation vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, countries like, uh, like, like Italy. Um, the ideas, well, we, for instance, uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, a uh, qualification of the right to vote and the right to be to be voted. If uh, we uh, move to a paradigm of knowledge democracy, probably the uh, one head, one vote um, a, um, taboo uh, must be uh, reconsidered. Uh, we also uh, we also uh, are talking about uh, uh, combining uh, uh, in institutional innovation uh, with uh, with technologies that make uh, uh, make uh, many things which were impossible today possible. Just to give you another small idea that we, uh, we happen to, to discuss, the two of us, uh, Andrea, uh, one idea is uh, to create, uh, uh, to give the possibility uh, at the next European election, uh, election for the European Parliament, to people to even choose to be part of a European-wide constituency and not just necessarily constituency that are bound to specific place, whereas uh, uh, nowadays uh, people are, uh, um, are moving um, uh, more often and therefore not necessarily they are bound to a specific uh, city. Uh, this would mean to allow people to electronically choose beforehand whether they want to be part of a European-wide uh, constituency or a constituency uh, linked to their uh, territory. There are other ideas, uh, and uh, we really hope that uh, there be um, debate on those ideas, because we believe 
that the debate on how to reform liberal democracy is necessary for liberal democracy to survive to its own obsolescence. Yes, to read all the 10 ideas and also to read about the secret of China, which is explained hiddenly in chapter number three, you need to buy the book. So, yes, our listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, now, uh, I can ask you about your next book. So, do you have any current project? Well, yes. What I can say that probably the, the next book uh, will be uh, even more uh, specifically on uh, uh, the innovation paradox uh, and how to solve it. Uh, so it will be about uh, how uh, democracy can adapt to this uh, technological revolution, which is probably even bigger than the, the big industrial revolution that we have uh, uh, witnessed in the, in the past. Um, the characteristic of this research is that it is very much interdisciplinary, as it is evident. So it's not just about economics or uh, political economy. It's also about uh, political science and innovation management. So I really hope that uh, there will be other uh, researchers like uh, you, Andrea, or Raffaella, to, to, um, to, to network with each other. Um, I'm very curious to explore uh, more China, and I'm going to Beijing uh, uh, next July to teach uh, at the UIB uh, Business School in uh, Beijing, and I also want to to start learning uh, some Chinese uh, together with uh, with my daughter. And um, so we hope that uh, we and, uh, yes, one idea would also be to. Uh, to, to convince somehow the European institution uh, to make uh, uh, much more experiments uh, before uh, uh, adopting uh, transformation uh, reforms that need to be tested because we are uh, navigating uh, uncharted waters, I would say. So this is uh, more or less the rather uh, wide uh, plans for the future. Well, good luck with this project. And in the meantime, congratulations for the book that you have just published. I see on the cover of the book amazing uh, endorsements uh, from Romano Prodi, Bill Emmott, uh, colleagues from Chinese Academy of Social Science, colleagues from Stanford. So I'm sure this will be a success. We have spoken with Dr. Francesco Grillo about his latest book, Democracy and Growth in the 21st Century, The Diverging Cases of China and Italy, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2018. Thank you very much for being with us. Grazie, Andrea. Thanks. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.